Peter deals, uh, as we mentioned, we started this book, deals with suffering uh, and sometimes the pain that comes with being a believer, how this world will press in and attack. And uh, this one, this message and these verses really center in. He uses the word fiery trial. Uh, and we know that we can face fiery trials. And I always mention this whenever I'm preaching on suffering. It's not my favorite uh, thing to talk about. Uh, going through the whole book of Job, there's a, there's a hardness or hardship that walks through that. I know it's difficult to process because none of us, I think, uh, want to face uh, suffering. I was thinking of, a, of an illustration that would work with suffering, and I came up to this idea of being in shape. Um, and sometimes I think about being in shape um, and about the benefits of that. As you can tell, I'm not in shape. Um, I think about what it would be like to run a marathon. Uh, actually, when I was turning 40, I told my brother-in-law who was running a marathon, I said, I'm going to try to run a marathon with you. And he told me to save my money, don't sign up, is what his encouragement was. And he was right. I did save my money. I didn't sign up. I've reached a point now where I'd love to even run a mile maybe uh, someday. Um, I, I think about what it would be like to be fit, to move something heavy without feeling like I need oxygen. That's the idea in my mind. But even as I think about getting in shape, my doctor says to get in shape, my mind instantly goes to the commitment that will be required. It means working out daily. At least that's what I've read about it because I like to read about it. Uh, it means working out daily for an extended period of time. So I've come to the conclusion that 10 push-ups once in a while is not enough. I, I need to do more than that. I have to commit to a workout plan. But just talking to people who are fit, those who are committed uh, to lifting weights. I look at Kelvin. I think, man, there's a man that's committed to fitness and strength. And I just start sweating just talking to him. Just, and I feel winded. I feel off immediately, let alone walking through it. I can't handle it because the idea of being in shape, of being fit feels great. I love thinking about it while sitting on my couch, eating cookies and chips and thinking what I could do with this body of mine. I'm just building momentum here with the chips and cookies. Uh, but when I think about the struggle, the sweat, the commitment, the patience, the pain, well, I get flaky. I start thinking of a way out. I start reading the articles about the miracle pill or some shake that tastes delicious that'll make you perfectly in shape. I say all that on suffering is because in the Christian walk, I think we all, if you're, if you're a believer, being fit for Christ is an appealing idea especially when you're at a Christian conference with especially coffee in hand. Uh, being able to be sold out for him, if you've heard that, to proclaim Christ boldly in all of life seems reasonable in theory. It's just the trials and suffering for our faith that really don't appeal to any of us. Because suffering rarely feels like a blessing and suffering rarely feels like it's the path to God's glory. It doesn't feel like it's the most efficient way to accomplish God's purpose. It doesn't feel like it's even a way at all. You see, we expect to be most effective for God in our strength and at our best. Surely we think that we can honor our Savior the most when we feel the best. We can proclaim him the loudest when we're at our strength. Yet so often the opposite is true. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, Paul is speaking of a thorn in the flesh, something that he sought for the Lord to remove. 
wanting it to depart. And his reasons were so that he could serve God better. Yet God said this to Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. To which Paul responded, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, which is what Peter is centering on here, in distress for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. A writer, David Helm, notes this, that Jesus knew that the eternal glory of the Christ could be established only by suffering on the cross. Thus, as Jesus approaches the worst moment of his earthly existence, he prays this in John 17, 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. And when he was saying that, he's saying, it's time for me to suffer. I know I'm walking into horrific suffering that culminates with the father turning his back on him, which has never happened in all eternity because of the sin he bore. And he says this after that, glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. So we understand as we look at Paul and we look at Christ that suffering ties into God's glory. Suffering ties into, in some way, in God's plan, it's going to be the way that we're going to proclaim Christ the loudest. That Christ is not necessarily thinking, well, you need to be at your best to proclaim me. But instead, you need to be a vessel that can be worked through him, that his power is on display. And so in these verses, Peter now is reconnecting the churches, us, to the reality of living in a hostile world. He stated that in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, we're strangers and we're pilgrims. And the fact is, in such a world, we can face trials. We can face persecution and suffering, yet those trials will be used to bring about God's purpose. They'll be used for good. Romans 8, 28 states, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So as we embark on these verses from Peter, as we journey toward eternity, as we glorify our Savior, there is the good possibility that we face trials, and as Peter calls them, fiery trials, and we need to walk through those trials as children of God, bringing glory to his name and knowing, and this is hard, knowing deep to our core, they work in us God's good and his purpose. To do that, though, we must, and this is where Peter's lessons come in, recognize them. Uh, verses 12 through 14, he starts off saying, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you or to prove you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, or blessed are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Now, Peter knows that the topic at hand is not easy. Never in Scripture is suffering made to be a casual thing. Never is suffering something to be sought after. We're not looking to be punished by the world. We're not looking for them to beat us. We're not buying the bat and saying, please club me with this because I'm a Christian. And so Peter, knowing that this is going to be a topic that is difficult to comprehend, this church 
and, and these churches in Asia Minor, they're, they're facing initial persecutions. Nero's about to burn Rome. Everyone knows he did it. He's going to blame Christians. Christians were already hated. They were linked to Judaism and then they're hated because of the fact that they didn't fit in. They weren't the same as everyone else. They didn't engage in all the immorality. We talked about that last week, how that, that witness and that testimony just ostracized them. And so they're going to become willing targets or, or easy targets for the world to attack. And so he begins with that title, Beloved, and it's a title that conveys love. And specifically, he's trying to convey God's love because he wants them to know God's love for his church. So Peter makes sure the church understands who they are in God's eyes because they're about to feel unloved. They're about to be or are being attacked by the world. The church is going to feel abandoned by God. That's a sentiment that comes up when we're there. Or they're going to be surprised by suffering and persecution. The early church had a mindset that Christ was coming immediately, that, that immediacy of Christ's return. And so they're kind of looking for things to get better and then to go to heaven. And so suffering and persecution really felt like a step back. Here's the interesting thing. We today have the same kind of sentiment. We still feel like it's a setback in the advance of the gospel or in life. And so he's continuing to instruct them about suffering and persecution and the first thing he affirms to them is love, specifically the love of God. And then also by using that term, he's affirming his love for them as well. He's saying, we as apostles love you. And more importantly, you know the love of God because Satan is going to try to undermine that. Suffering and persecution, if it works in Satan's behalf, is going to make you question that God cares for you. And so if, if that is accomplished, then he's won in the life of the, of the belief. Satan's accomplished what he would want is to separate you mentally from thinking that God cares about you. And so Peter says, no, God loves you. And so he refers to them with a loving terminology, beloved. But as the church now encounters those trials, he wants them to understand. He wants them to recognize and not be derailed by those trials. And so Peter says, in essence, don't be surprised. He says, think it not strange. And then as though some strange thing happened to you, and the word strange there, same word in Greek, constantly used over. Um, facing fiery trials, what Peter is telling them, is not seen as some novel concept or totally unexpected event or out of the ordinary even. The world will hate the truth, and we've been promised that they will, and we need to be aware, not surprised, by that reality. Jesus spoke to his disciples and he told them, the world hates me. And if you're my disciples, they are going to hate you. Why? Well, if you look at Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians uh, 2, 15 through 16, he says this, for we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. So for God as believers, we are the smell of Christ to the world in them that are saved and in them that perish. To both believers and unbelievers, we are the savor or the smell of Christ to them. To the one, we are the savor of death unto death. And to the other, the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? Why does the world attack? Because we remind them of God. Not only do we remind them of God, we remind them of God's authority. Uh, we remind them that God is right. And we actually remind them that God is going to judge them, that they're accountable to God, and they hate us for it. You are, as a believer, either going to smell 
like life to somebody, and that's to other believers, or you're going to have the stink of death in their mind on you because you remind them that they are accountable to a higher being than themselves. And so they hate us. Now, these trials come in a variety of forms. We actually talked about this in chapter one. One writer noted it's seasons of lacking. Uh, Trials will be a lack of provision, power, position, or protection. There's times of verbal and even physical persecution because of our faith. We see the verbal side here in the States. You go around the world a little bit. You see a much more physical attack because you're a believer. You're attacked because of who you believe in. You're attacked because of Jesus Christ. There's the pain of losing loved ones and even the pain of long goodbyes. And there's also dark moments in life when we battle the prowling attacks of Satan. Those are trials. Those are afflictions. And so many of them linked to being a believer. And for that reason, the world or the system or Satan comes to buffet and to attack. These are the trials which Peter says should not surprise us. We're not to be surprised by what we face. Sometimes we're blown away by what we're walking through. And if we would get the perspective right, we would recognize his hand upon us, his hand guiding us through us. Because here's the reality. He says, don't be surprised by it. But he also wants you to understand, don't miss the growth because of them. The fiery trial, which is to try you, which is the word for prove. It's supposed to validate you. It's supposed to tell you that you're his. You're supposed to rejoice knowing that it's when his glory shall be revealed. Be glad, be blessed for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. These trials, by the way, will show us and the world the genuineness of our faith. They prove you. And we don't seek them to have that validation, but we understand as a believer, when you walk through suffering, when you walk through trials, and that's why I gave the list before, any of those types of trials that we're we're journeying through, they will prove, your response will prove to you most importantly, but a testimony to the world that you are his child. These trials connect us to our Savior. We're persecuted as he was. Reviled, hated, cursed, attacked. We share, it says, in his suffering. We read through the gospel accounts and and the cross was horrific. But as you lead up to the cross, it's horrific. As you look at his three years of ministry walking the earth, what is he constantly facing? Liars, doubters, hypocrites. The religious leaders of the nation he came to redeem, rejecting the Messiah that's been predicted since Genesis. People who claim to know the Bible tell Jesus, you're not the Messiah, even though everything he does proves that he is the Messiah. As we suffer here on earth, we share in his sufferings. These trials ultimately end in joy at his coming. We share his suffering, and therefore, Peter says, we share his glory. Suffering then keeps our eyes on eternity. It fixes our gaze on his return. It doesn't mean we stare into the sky all the time and are absolutely useless for things here on earth. Instead, our priority is always Christ's return because we know at his return, we will be joyful and exceedingly glad. These trials being reproached for his name, reveal that we are blessed and it places us in great company. You read through the Old Testament and you read about the prophets and the majority of them faced intense persecution. 
I just finished reading through Jeremiah, and there's somebody who no one ever listened to, preached God's word for a lifetime, and no one ever paid attention to apply it the correct way. Ends up in Egypt when he told people, don't go because it's going to be more suffering. There's somebody who walked the journey here on earth. Well, as we suffer for Christ, we are in great company. Matthew 5, 11 through 12 is the Sermon on the Mount. Christ says this, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. When we face suffering, we recognize that we walk in great company. Understand this as well. Trials will reveal the presence of the Holy Spirit upon your life as he gives supernatural relief through these times of suffering. When it says he resteth upon you, it means that he gives relief, refreshment, and intermission from toil. In other words, you will know the presence of the Holy Spirit. You'll understand it, not that you get a special extra presence. As a believer, we have the Holy Spirit. Become, you become aware of what God has given to you. You become aware of his presence as he carries you through that. Being persecuted for Christ can come as a shock. We can feel isolated by it. We can think it is outside the norm and be offended that it is happening to us. So Peter calls these churches. He calls us, don't be surprised, he says. We know this world hated our Savior, and it will surely hate and attack his children. So instead of surprise, let's be sure to grow through them. Let's be sure to prove our faith, to bring glory to the name of Christ, which, by the way, is the exact name that they are attacking, and to point this world to their only real hope. As we walk through persecution, I know my initial reaction when I'm being attacked for my faith is I want to attack back. If someone zings me, I want to double wham them and maybe get some lightning from heaven just to make sure they get the point. But the fact is, as we walk through suffering correctly, I'm not saying we're this world's doormat, but we, as we walk through suffering, we're hopefully highlighting to the world that their only hope is Christ, that there is nothing else that's there. And so as we journey through this and we're not surprised and grow through it, we'll find that our life then becomes a, a beam in theirs, shining the light of the gospel. Because when facing fire trials, we need to recognize them. Don't be shocked. Don't be thrown off. But we also, and Peter continues, need to review them. If you look at the next verses, 15 through 18, it says this, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them be then be of them that obey not the gospel of God, which is a great question. If we're walking through suffering now as his children, what do you think that unbelievers will face? If you don't know Christ as your savior, that's a question that he's asking you. If someone's in the church right now and is sitting under Peter's teaching at that time or now, they're saying, if you think Christians suffer and you think you're avoiding some type of suffering, imagine what is in store for you. He continues with it. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Let me paraphrase that. If 
Believers are saved not by the skin of their teeth, but it's an effort for salvation. And redemption is not cheap. It's costly. Then what chance, he's saying, does someone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins have? What chance does someone who doesn't believe that have if salvation is so costly on this end? But we can see he starts off with this idea of wondering, do we cause our own suffering? Are we the issue? So Peter asks this question or says this, don't be the problem. Don't be a murderer, a thief, evildoer, or busybody. And that's quite the gamut right there of potential. By the way, if you're a murderer or a thief in the ancient world, it was a capital punishment. So the, the answer to being a murderer, which we have the same, somewhat same laws today, or a thief is that you, you gave your life for that. Then the idea of being an evildoer is general crimes. A petty crimes is tied into this idea of evildoer. And then it's extended to those who meddle or stir up issues socially. So from start to finish, Peter says to the church, I don't want you to murder people. I don't want you to be a thief. I don't want you to be petty crimes. And actually, I don't even want you to be a gossip. I don't want you to be a troublemaker. I don't want you to suffer for anything but the gospel is what he's leading to. Uh, MacArthur notes this, Christians are never to be troublemakers or agitators in society or in their places of work. However, and this is important, we do confront sin. We do challenge unbelievers with the gospel, but that doesn't mean we're called to meddle or control the affairs of this life. Our belief in Jesus Christ is not an excuse to engage in illegal reactions to things. Their sin doesn't justify your sin. You might say, well, unbelievers are punching believers. And so as a believer, I'm going to go now punch unbelievers. It doesn't justify that. And so what Peter is trying to say is don't be persecuted. Don't suffer because of your bad character. One writer comments here that, that the church seemed to have people resisting paganism. So their society was pagan. Uh, they engaged, and we don't understand that. We, we can't grasp the idea of what a pagan society looks like. Uh, they engaged in, in rank immorality. They did whatever they wanted in the worship of whatever God they could think of. You want to do something, find a God that would allow that, and then you worshiped that. And, and that was a part of life. Every party would have been surrounding that. Thus, all those sins from last week listed there, we think, wow, this is the most wild society ever. It, it was that way. That's a pagan society, what it looks like. There's no sense of morality there. I've shared this before. The concept of humility is a Christian concept. Uh, in the Roman world, to be humble was, uh, was a a terrible thing. Losers were humble. Pride was elevated. That's what a, a, a pagan, that's even less pagan than, than these societies would have been. That's what pagan is. There's no morality there. And so there was people resisting paganism, but it was obvious that their reasons were beyond a sincere and legitimate concern for the gospel. They were resisting for something other than Christ's message. And I read a, a, a brief testimony of a Russian pastor who was asked about the persecution under the communist regime. And this was back when they faced even more persecution. And the person recounting the story had asked if they ever engaged in rebellion against that form of government. 
And I thought his answer was interesting or maybe even convicting. The church had decided that if they were persecuted and attacked by secular authorities, it would only be for the gospel, for their stand for Christ and his truth. So as a church in a, in a corrupt government world, and I'm, I'm not being prescriptive here, I'm just sharing a story of, of a pastor in Russia. There he sits, he says, we decided as a church that if we're going to face pain specifically, it's going to be only our stand for the gospel. And here's the thing, they suffered. The pastor gave testimony that every member of their church faced an unjust style of suffering from a government that worships atheism. Well, that's communism's heart and soul is that there is no God. And so they, they're going to attack anything that has God in front of it. You don't have to do anything extra to be attacked by him. So they faced persecution. They gave all, even to some extent, the right, the right to defend their rights to be sure it was the gospel and Christ that was in perspective. And what was accomplished in that church? Everybody that persecuted that church persecuted them for the gospel and nothing else. And whether or not those authorities ever came to know Christ, whether God used that church's testimony uh, to convert, to change souls, they were faithful to the gospel. No one could deny that what was done to them was for Christ's sake. So I put here, be sure... We need to be sure that we're not suffering for crimes and lack of character. Because sometimes Christians feel that they're suffering, but they're suffering, and I would say for their own stupidity sometimes, on their own account. We see that over and over again. They do something that says, well, okay, well, yeah, society's not going to like you. And I don't think it's Christ they don't like in you. They just don't like you because of who you are. We're not to suffer that way. We're supposed to actually review what's taking place to make sure. But when we do suffer because we spread his light and share his gospel, Peter says this, don't be ashamed. The interesting thing is being called a Christian at that time was a label of derision. It was how the world mocked those who were saved. The church at this time would refer to each other as brethren, refer to each other as saints, would refer to to each other as those of the way. And now I sound like I'm quoting a Star Trek or Star Wars movie, but they stole it from the Bible. So this idea is that was how they would refer to each other. They wouldn't refer to each other as Christians. Peter, and this is an on purpose thing, says, don't be ashamed of being called a Christian. And he actually uses the actual word that the world was using to mock believers because they were followers of Christ. He says, don't be ashamed by that. Instead, he says, give God glory for being counted worthy of suffering for his name. And if you think about this, go all the way back to the early church. If you're in Acts and you go to the beginning days of the church, after the apostles are beaten for proclaiming Christ, they, and it says this in Acts 5, 41, departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so Peter reminds the church, he says, I don't want you to feel ashamed. You don't have to be apologetic for being a Christian. Instead, you count it as an honor to be worthy to have suffered for Christ. Now, there's a big shift that takes place after this. His conversation now moves to another aspect of suffering, and it's the purifying 
component of suffering, something that warrants our review as well. See, Peter focuses our eyes on what we walk through now, and he wants to put it in perspective. It's momentary judgment and refining. And he does that by carrying the glance to the ultimate or eternal judgment for unbelievers, a look that keeps our pain in perspective and helps us recognize the ultimate end of our persecutors. And that's his goal here is now recognize that not only are you suffering for the name of Christ and you're counted worthy, but now God is still also refining you through this suffering, not making what someone does against you right. It's showing you how God will work his purpose through whatever is being done to you. And he does that by highlighting what the world will face in the sense of judgment. For the time has come, he's saying, hey, it's, it's, we're in this, that judgment must begin at the house of God. And he means the church there, the household of faith, speaking of the church, speaking of us. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? In other words, he's saying, if God is going to use bad wickedness, he's going to take the wrong that's done, the suffering we face, and he's going to use that to refine us, to purify us, then his question is, what in the world is going to be the end for those who are unbelievers? And the answer is judgment, concluding with Christ's final condemnation at the great, great white throne. MacArthur notes this as well. It says, it is infinitely better for people to endure suffering with joy now as believers being purified for effective testimony and eternal glory than to later bear eternal torment as unbelievers. Perspective. Because at times when you're a Christian and you stand for Christ, you'll get pushback. In this world today, you and I both know it, in some form or fashion, someone's going to mock you, uh, belittle you, uh, reduce the chances of promotion, you name it. There's going to be some cost you pay. And God is sharing through Peter, the Holy Spirit sharing through Peter, that that will refine you. I think one of the, the things it does is it prioritizes your life. You start realizing what is important. And you will find in yourself that it proves your faith. Is Christ the priority of your life or have you placed something else there and then you come to church periodically because it's convenient and it costs you nothing besides two hours and some gas money? The fact is, it's going to refine us. Suffering will refine us. But then he wants us to understand it in the perspective of eternity if you're refined here on earth and it's within God's will, he allows that to take place. He's sovereign. He's all powerful. He's in control. So understanding that this isn't outside of God's control. He says, if that is what he does with his children here on earth temporally, what do you think is going to happen to the unbeliever? As you stare out at the person persecuting you, you're reminded of their lostness. You're reminded of their need. And again, Peter is shifting the mind of the church because the people that are beating and persecuting you are the same people you're supposed to preach the gospel to. And he says, think about that. And then he links to Proverbs eleven thirty one. It's not a, a necessarily perfect quote. It's from the, the Septuagint. Uh, he says this, and if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? And in some translations, you're going to see it in quotes or in a different font because it is a quote from the Old Testament. He's emphasizing that salvation was costly. The word scarcely is not by the skin of your teeth, but instead it wasn't cheap. 
It's highlighting that it was excruciatingly difficult for Jesus to redeem us, not to accomplish it, but to understand the agony he went through. Whenever we talk at Easter time, and, and I remind people, when he, he sweated blood, you can imagine how horrific this was for your Savior as he journeyed to the cross. And so the scarcely saved is it's not just some flippant nothingness. It's not trivial. It's not a joke for God to carry his redemption plan to final glory. We as Christians sometimes diminish it. And so Peter is trying with the church. He first says, look, you're going through a purifying judgment, but imagine what unbelievers will walk through. And then he says, if we're scarcely saved, if we understand that we're saved through the the work of God and it was costly for him, how do you think he will respond to the world? With, with the cost of salvation in mind, he sent his son. He planned this before the foundation of the earth. He promised it to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, all through the Old Testament. He's working this out. Isaiah is chock full of the suffering that the Savior will go through. And then we watch that unfold in the Gospels. And then we watch the church being born and the suffering they're going through. How is God going to handle the unsaved, rejecting, hating, sarcastic world when they reach eternity? And we have to pause ourselves, right? As you look at this, we are called to examine ourselves, to examine our heart of whether we truly know Christ as Savior. How will God deal with those type of people? Will they just fade away and cease to exist? That's a popular idea. That's what most of them preach and push. Famous writers, who, by the way, aren't overly scientific, little sci-fi stuff, and everyone loved it. But the fact is, uh, Stephen Hawking says, I'm like an old computer. You dump me on the done. I'm, I'm done for. He knows that that's not true. Right now he knows that, sadly. Too late for him. But Peter asked this question, what in the world do you think will happen? If, if salvation costs this much and for the redeemed to be saved, and it's, it's excruciatingly difficult, how in eternity will God respond to those who have rejected his son? who mocked it, thought it was silly, thought it was sci-fi, thought it was crazy, whatever it is, whatever the thought is in the brain there, how will we respond? Do they just fade away? Absolutely not. What he says is they will face eternal suffering that is far greater than anything faced on earth. Their condition is eternally serious. What I love about what Peter is doing, and this is not easy for me, uh, is when I'm facing suffering, He's trying to shift the church's eyes to the lost for them to recognize how serious it is for their persecutors. What unbelievers will face. If you're scarcely or if you're redeemed through much effort by God, what will happen to people who spurn that effort, who are unsaved? And as the church, we're called in our suffering to get our minds on the lost and on presenting the gospel, on presenting their only hope. We're supposed to review the persecution and suffering, the pressure, and make sure that we're not the problem. We're to analyze what is done to us, and we don't shrink back because of persecution for Christ. We're not ashamed, or I put apologetic to this world about who we believe in. Instead, we make sure our struggle highlights his glory, that we communicate through the suffering his 
gospel message. We make that the priority, knowing the reality of judgment on the world and knowing the full cost of redemption. And as we look at the cost of redemption and we know what the world faced, that's supposed to burden us, the punishment in store for those who have spurned Christ. The truth, that truth and application, however, uh, doesn't always erase the tailspin that suffering and persecution often seem to cause. In life, and I think we've seen this, I know for me personally, I see what suffering can do to someone. How it can, when I can, tailspin, I'm thinking of a, of a helicopter that loses control and it's just, it can't get a grip on it again. You can't seem to land the plane. And persecution tends to do that. Even though we know all these truths, even though we understand that we're not to be ashamed, that we're not to be persecuted for our own problems, that we're, we're not to be surprised, that we're supposed to grow through it, that our mind is supposed to be fixed on the loss. When we face persecution, sometimes it tailspins us. Suffering can spin us out of control. The reality of suffering creates confusion in our mind. It distracts us from our Savior And so Peter actually closes this conversation on suffering with a call, and I put to rest them, verse 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. I don't know how everyone's brain thinks. I don't even know how my brain thinks, really. But in my mind, I like to reason things out. And it's very tempting, I know for myself, to rest in my own reasoning, uh, to take comfort in my logic. But I also recognize in verse 19, Peter is highlighting the danger of that. Because if you're a reasoner, if you're a person that has to get the logical, if, if I can grab a hold of suffering and I want to explain why it's taking place, if I can put it on a hook if I can hang it in a certain place, it's okay, I'm suffering or this person's suffering, but I see what's, what's good. This is how it's going to work out. And then I, I feel okay with it. I can handle it. But the problem is I'm, I'm ultimately resting in my intellect. What happens when we can't make sense of it? When we can't figure it out? Well, then the door is open to Satan to sow seeds of discouragement to lead astray. And so Peter In closing out his discussion on suffering in this moment, he tells the church, don't be misguided. And the concept here is trust. And it's one question, in whom do we trust? Not just, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but do you hang the the logic and the reasoning, do you trust that he knows even when you do not? Even when you may never know this side of heaven. See, if, if I am the ultimate logic and reasoning source, then I know this, I'm on shaky ground. If you're the ultimate answer, if you have to understand, if you have to find a way to hang this on something, if you have to see the reason, then you're in a terrible place and you can be toppled over with ease. Satan will find a way to destroy that reasoning. The world will erode that. Instead, what Peter is telling us is we're to recognize God's sovereignty in all things. Suffer, and he says, according to the will of God. That's a bold statement. Writing to churches and saying, hey, by the way, this this persecution that's coming at you for being a follower of Christ, that's according to the will of God. It's not a surprise to him. It's not outside his purpose even. And so he says, first and foremost, as you wrestle with with suffering, 
connect to the sovereignty of God. It is according to the will of God and trust him to do what is best. Now, when you trust him to do what is best, it's not followed up with, I want an explanation. And I'm not a a blind, you know, people say, well, just dumb faith. You just do whatever and it doesn't matter. That's what we're accused of. But see, this is when, when the rubber meets the road on trusting. See, I really trust God when he's moved me into an area that I can't get my mind wrapped around. When I can't logically understand it. And I'm not saying we're supposed to be silly and foolish people, but real trust as we face a circumstance and you say, how do you explain that? I remember different people have asked me that at different times. Like, well, can you explain to me how this works in God's plan? And it's times like that where we have to trust him to do what is best. I'm going to come all the way back to Romans 8, 28. And we know, and I might say, do we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose? God says we can know that everything is worked out according to his purpose. It's good. But do we? Because that's the big question. He closes out suffering. Suffering can destroy you if you can't trust him. And you have to trust him when you don't understand what's taking place and you don't see any way to understand it. And that confronts us, right? Because as human beings, and I'm going to add the sinful human beings, we expect to know. We believe it is our right to understand what is taking place. We demand that God explain himself to us. I may not think anyone else can understand it, but God owes me an explanation That's how we process. And Peter closes out suffering and says, trust in God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 31, I won't read the whole psalm, but a few verses. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. Bow down thine ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be thou my strong rock for an house of defense to save me. For thou art my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for thy name's sake, leave me and guide me. As suffering comes to us, as the world attacks and mocks, and this is the final question he's asking the church and prodding, in whom are we going to trust? In whom will we rest? And that's why I say ultimately with suffering, we have to rest them in the sovereignty of God and his wisdom and his direction and his goodness and his justice and his fairness, because My explanation of fair and just will never be adequate. The world will throw, this life will throw curveballs that are hard to explain. And I'll go a step further, are impossible for us to explain. And the only way we handle it is because we actually trust him when we cannot know. And that's what the world jokes about. When they see that in Christian, they say, you have a blind faith or you're ignorant in faith. And what they don't realize is we've thought our way all the way through this. And at the end, when no one could understand it anyway, we trust in him. See, the thought of fiery trials is not a pleasant one. It's not something we look forward to walking through. Yet as we live for Christ, we know this world will push back and that this world will attack. So as we encounter these trials, let's not be surprised by them, but instead grow because of them. 
Let's not find ourselves to be the cause of them, but instead know that we are persecuted for his name's sake and what we and that we need not be ashamed. And as discouragement comes crashing in, let's not be misguided, but instead trust in Jesus, knowing he has a perfect plan and that what is accomplished will be good according to his purpose. Let's rest the struggle, pain, attacks of this life in the more than capable hands of our Savior. Knowing this, he faced those same things. He faced excruciatingly, uh, excruciating difficulties to buy our redemption. Instead of doubt because of suffering, let's see our suffering for him as our participation with him, which is a concept that Job learned as well, and know it will be used to proclaim his gospel and to proclaim his redemption. At the end of it all, he will take your suffering and the pain and the injustice and the unfairness and whatever may attack or afflict us in our mind, and he will use that to bring glory to his name. And then I'm reminded again of what Peter said in the middle as you're facing the suffering, remember the lost. Remember your persecutors that they face a judgment that is beyond belief, that is eternal. And so we are then fixed on our purpose yet again through our suffering to have our mind fixed on his gospel and his salvation and the only hope that is possible for anyone in this world, and that's Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. And Father, thank for the opportunity we have to dive into a difficult passage. It's, it's never fun to think about suffering. It's never fun to process it. We don't even see uh, you giggling about suffering, but instead we see the pain that it caused and, and the heartache. Uh, but we recognize that it's according to your will, that you accomplish your purpose through everything in our lives. I know for myself personally uh, that the hardest step for me uh, one is not to be persecuted because how obnoxious I am, but two, to understand uh, and to trust in you that I may not understand or be able to wrap my mind around or have what's taking place fit my logic or my preferred uh, structure of life. And I ask that as we walk into this world, as we may suffer uh, for your name, as we live for you, I hope that we all will land on resting that suffering in your capable hands that we will always go to trusting in you, even when we can't explain it, when it seems like the world's arguments are winning or that they have the better statements. Instead, we say, but we trust in him. We know our Savior, and we know that he works good through all of life according to his purpose. And we rest and rejoice in the fact that we are fulfilling his will for our lives. Uh, give us the peace to walk through that. Give us the wisdom and discernment to share that with those who may be walking through a struggle and a pain, uh, that they can trust in Jesus Christ. They may not understand it. They may not be able to wrap their mind around it, but instead they can just rest in him, trusting completely in his goodness and his greatness. In your precious and holy name.